welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Matthew Light. Matt is Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociolegal Studies at the University of Toronto. Matt focuses in his work on migration control, policing and criminal justice in the post-Soviet region. So today on the podcast, we're going to have a discussion about the Ukraine conflict with a view from post-Soviet states. So I look forward to the discussion. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you. First of all, can you just outline for listeners, what are we talking about when we say post-Soviet states? Who are those states? Right. It's it's a great question. And it's actually more complicated than it appears at first glance from the perspective of 2022. So back in 1991, when the Soviet Union was officially disbanded at the end of that year, it was understood that that expression, the post-Soviet region, meant the 15 independent states that had emerged from what was the Soviet Union. The, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which some people of my age, so uh, you know, 50 and up will probably remember, was a complicated process that it's actually worth pointing out was really set in motion by the then president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, who saw the central government of the Soviet Union as an obstacle to his ambitions to break up the Communist Party's control of the political system and uh, to cement his own authority. I'm summarizing quite a lot of history, but essentially Yeltsin agreed with the other heads of what were then called the Union Republics, so the 15 constituent republics of the USSR, to end the Soviet Union and that they would all become independent states. Ukraine was one of those republics. Ukraine has a long history of involvement with not only the Russian Empire, which was the predecessor to the Soviet Union, but also um, involvement with other with other European states. So it, it is not simply an extension of Russia. It has had a distinct history um, in various periods. Uh, portions of it have been in union with Poland. Portions of it have been ruled by the Austrian Empire. Portions of it have even been ruled by the Ottoman Empire. That's particularly the, the Crimea region. So it is, it is a diverse region and was part of the Soviet Union as one of these 15 republics, uh, which then voluntarily disbanded at the end of 1991. I think it's important to bring that out because it kind of goes to some of the rather revanchist claims that the Russian Federation has been making on Ukraine since then. In particular, it's demands that Ukraine's borders should be changed and that Russia should be given Ukrainian territory. So these are the borders of these republics. They were agreed on. They all signed on the dotted line. Uh, Russia said it was happy with them. So that's um, Ukraine and Russia. But I think the complexity of this region is that if we fast forward for 30 years to where we are today in 2022, these 15 republics have diverged and taken very different political and economic paths. So um, at one extreme, we have the three so-called Baltic states of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, which have become established democracies and had um, successful economic transitions and have also joined um, the two main Western clubs of the European Union and NATO. At the other extreme of what might say the political trajectory, we have a number of Central Asian republics that remain extremely poor and politically repressive. So I'm thinking here of Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, arguably Tajikistan, and even Kyrgyzstan. The largest Central Asian state and one of the richest post-Soviet states is Kazakhstan, which is rich in oil and minerals and has um, one of the highest standards of living in, in the whole region, but is also, uh, like Russia itself, uh, essentially an autocracy. Um, and Russia was recently called in there to help the government um, suppress protests um, that were in danger of toppling it, or at least allegedly. 
And then we have a number of other states, all of which have taken different positions vis-a-vis Russia and uh, other external issues, and some of which have their own internal conflicts. So, for example, um, in the South Caucasus region, there are three independent republics, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Georgia has had a long-standing conflict with the Russian Federation that actually has some similarities with, with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, um, including Russia's sort of use of regional or ethnic disputes within Georgia to foment a separatist uprising, which it then backed, causing a partial breakup of the country. There is also a territorial dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan, centering on a particular Armenian-populated enclave that was part of Azerbaijan at the so in the Soviet period, which which Azerbaijan has uh, recently reconquered. So uh, there too, there is a kind of complex role for Russia, which is try to kind of uh, play a brokerage role, although sort of more identified with the Armenian side than the Azeri side. The Baltics have clearly left the fold. They are now uh, fully integrated into European politics. There are other states that have also sort of quarreled with Russia. So Ukraine is clearly the best example. <laughs> Georgia would also be in that category. And then another one that is um, somewhat in this category is Moldova, which is in south, the southwestern portion of the former Soviet Union, borders Romania and Ukraine, and is predominantly inhabited by people who, who are or are very similar to ethnic Romanians. Russia occupies portions of that country through its proxies. So we have Three countries, um, we could say, that back in the 90s and 2000s were kind of edging away from the Russian from the Russian orbit and trying to be admitted um, without success to the EU and NATO. That would be Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. Now, in the wake of the full-scale invasion, we've just seen Ukraine and Moldova for the first time being given the green light for possible future EU accession. Um, however, none of these countries was admitted to NATO. That has left a kind of limbo in which um, these countries are sort of faced with a hostile Russia, but not protected from it by, by any external power. So the other, the other dimension to this is that Russia itself has tried to create its own supranational or regional institutions for all these countries. So it's first of all created a defense agreement that it's tried to integrate as many countries as possible into, as well as an economic component intended to create a free trade zone um, with eventually the ruble as a currency. So kind of a quasi-EU, but dominated by Russia. It's important to note that actually this is a part of the dispute that led to the the current crisis or the war of aggression in Ukraine. So back in 2013, Ukraine under its then pro-Russian Yanukovych was negotiating uh, with the EU on on, uh, a comprehensive uh, cooperation agreement, which Russia very strongly opposed. Russia wanted uh, Ukraine to join its regional institutions. And um, there was a majority in Ukraine for the EU option, although not, a, not necessarily a unanimity. There was clearly a significant minority of people, particularly in eastern Ukraine, who saw Russia as um, an important economic partner that needed to be preserved. And it was the uh, decision by Yanukovych to terminate the negotiations with Brussels that led to the protests that ultimately ousted him um, and then triggered the, the, the Russian um, invasion of Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was interesting recently, you mentioned Kazakhstan as one of the most prominent amongst the Central Asian states. Yeah. And recently, we actually had Kazakhstan refuse to support, I think I would say that correctly. Yeah, the, absolutely. Let's say, air quotes, special military operation in Ukraine. What did you see as maybe the driver's for that move? And how significant is it if we're trying to understand the kind of support that Russia has, even among states that they might consider should be clearly within their fold or within their sort of sphere of influence? Yes, um, that's it's it's a great question. And, and Kazakhstan is a fascinating country to examine. So 
the background is that Kazakhstan does participate in, in Russia's regional economic and defense institutions um, and has um, tried to preserve a cordial relationship with Russia over the years. Um, has not expressed any interest in joining NATO or the EU, for example, and has also looked to Russia for support in maintaining its own authoritarian political system. So the current president, Tokayev, recently had to actually bring in Russian troops um, to support him against these protests. So this is not a negative relationship. Um, at the same time, the, the crisis with Ukraine or the invasion of Ukraine has sort of brought to the surface some tensions in that relationship. So first of all, it's one thing to be on cordial terms with Russia and to acquiesce in their, even to acquiesce in their demands to, to join in these regional institutions. Um, it's quite another thing to burn your bridges with the West. And I think what we're seeing from Tukhayev is a kind of pushing back on the expectation of subservience. This doesn't mean that he's some kind of hero or that we should think of him as a uh, some kind of um, you know embattled, um, embattled democratic figure trying to protect his country. No, but even in terms of his own sort of regime, what he's, I think, experiencing is that, you know, Russia is asking him and his government to, to for example, to violate sanctions, right, which could trigger secondary sanctions on Kazakhstan, um, and also essentially to kind of take Russia's side in this huge diplomatic and, you know, arguably, you know, a potentially military, right, confrontation with the West involving Ukraine, which is not really Kazakhstan's quarrel. There is a further dimension too, which um, was quite interesting in Tokayo's remarks um, when he was sitting actually with Putin on, on the dais at, at an economic forum in St. Petersburg. He said you know, very clearly, the United Nations system is based on the principles of, of sovereignty and territorial integrity. And if we let go of those, um, we're just going to be basically licensing you know, separatism around the world. And, and you know, Kazakhstan is not what, what we should do that. And we're not going to recognize these two statelets of the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics that the Russians set up in eastern Ukraine. The, the possible backstory to this is that Russia has also made noises over the years about the Russian-speaking population in northern Kazakhstan, who are the majority in some areas, or at least a large minority. And I think um, you don't have to be paranoid if you're um, the Kazakh government to fear that the same kind of arguments about you know, ethnic Russian solidarity or national self-determination that were spuriously used in, in Ukraine could also be applied to Kazakhstan. And in fact, after Tokayev made these remarks, a number of Russian political figures began sort of making statements about, you know, the need to, to re-examine these borders. It's, it's maybe worth noting that Putin himself in this incident also behaved extremely rudely to Tokayev and deliberately butchered his name while he was uh, seated a few feet away from him, which, you know, in a way is a trivial incident, but also kind of reveals sort of the, the Russian perception of hierarchy in this relationship. Uh, Kazakhstan, of course, should go along with Russia's demands, regardless of whether they're in the interest of the Kazakh government. Yeah, it's very interesting. And of course, all of the countries that we're talking about as post-Soviet states have some kind of Russian-speaking populations. And there's that very entangled history from those decades under the Soviet Union that's then hard in some ways to completely disentangle afterwards once there's been that breakdown of that particular political entity. And in that regard, I think if we look towards the Baltic states, even whilst there are still Russian-speaking populations, there seems to be very little pro-Russian sentiment. And we can see also in the reaction of Baltic states to the Ukraine conflict coming out very strongly in support for Ukraine. What are we seeing there? The Baltic states were among the most developed portions of the Russian Empire and, and the Soviet Union. 
And it's also important to bring out that they were independent states between World War I and World War II. They were occupied by both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany during World War II. And of course, at the end, the Soviet Union had the upper hand, but its annexation of them was not recognized. So unlike other portions of the Soviet Union, they continued to have governments in exile that were advocating for their independence. And after independence, they really basically immediately began kind of charting a course away from involvement with Russia. So they have a particular tragic history. I mean, there's a lot of tragedy in this region. A lot of sad and terrible things happened to people there. But the, the, the distinctive element here is that during and immediately after World War II, the Soviet authorities, when they were essentially conquering these three independent states, not only sort of decapitated the elite, so killed or, or arrested, drove into exile, many of the leading political figures of the independence period, but also deported a lot of the people living in these states to Siberia or other parts of the Soviet Union. And that, I think, has left a very strong residue in all these countries of deep suspicion of any Russian political involvements and a desire to, to be protected from Russia. So they, they managed their accession to the EU and NATO. Um, that was really a priority of theirs from the moment of independence. They succeeded in achieving that in the early 2000s. And their perspective is now that they are deeply threatened by the events in Ukraine. So first of all, a lot of the same kinds of irredentist arguments that have been deployed against Ukraine by Russia are deployed against them. I'll come back to that in a minute to, to take on some of the points that you made about the Russian language and so forth. Beyond that, um, these are three very small countries that could not survive on their own. Their survival depends on the backing of, of NATO. And you know, it's worth mentioning, I think this is an important point that often gets neglected. So there's been this kind of argument about whether um, Ukraine's aspiration to join NATO is the cause of the full-scale invasion. I think the, the evidence is overwhelming that that's not the case. So first of all, these are three post-Soviet countries that did join NATO and, and Russia dealt with it. There are other issues too. I mean, so Ukraine was actually officially neutral when Russia invaded in 2014. So clearly NATO was not the issue. Um, arguably the EU was even a bigger issue. So, you know, these are three countries that did join NATO but as part of the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe, NATO and Russia um, signed what was called the NATO-Russia Founding Act that was meant to be a kind of framework for their post-Cold War relations. And, and part of that entailed not establishing NATO bases in, in these three republics. And this is now becoming a huge issue because they're saying, and I think with some credibility or some cogence, that, uh, well, you know, Agreements with Russia don't seem to be very binding on Russia, and we're afraid of being overrun here. Um, so they are now lobbying for themselves to be given to be given permanent NATO bases. Beyond that, their concern is is that um, if Ukraine is successfully devoured, um, that they will be next. So they have taken over the course of the Ukraine crisis, and now since the the full scale invasion began, you know the the most you know strongly pro-Ukrainian position of anyone in the EU and NATO. So I mean Estonia in particular is way out ahead of, of other countries. Their contribution to Ukraine's military defense as a percentage of GDP is the highest in NATO, well ahead of the US and Canada and the UK. Um, it's a small country, but they are they're clearly all in for Ukraine. The other dimension that you were asking about is this question about the actual ties between Russia and other post-Soviet states and what kind of role those ties play or should play in, in their future political relations. So let me give you an analogy. I mean, you know, I'm a Canadian and American citizen born in the US, living in Canada, you're Australian. We're speaking English. I don't think it occurs to either of us that we all need to be part of the same country. You know, the fact that we speak English is 
a historical legacy of the British Empire. It's neither it's mm-hmm. neither good nor bad. Not all my ancestors spoke English. I don't know about yours. You know, uh, there are other things we have in common that link back to shared history. But you know, these arguments that this sort of shared history needs to be sort of dispositive in terms of the independence of these states or their borders. You know, really just don't make sense. Yeah, you know, most people in Ukraine can speak Russian. In some parts of Ukraine, Russian is sort of the lingua franca. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Kiev. You hear a lot of Russian there. But it's no more the case that Ukraine and Russia belong together in some kind of indissoluble political bond than it is that the UK and Australia or the UK and Canada also have to be part of the same state now. We can all be friends and trade and interact cordially as independent states. That does nonetheless implicate the question about particular minorities in some of these countries that, that identify as, as Russian speaking. So they're not necessarily ethnically Russian. Those are not the same thing, right? But it is true that, for example, in the Baltics, there are communities of people who, who moved or whose ancestors moved to, to those states when they were under Soviet occupation. And particularly in Estonia and Latvia, they were not immediately given citizenship after those countries regained their independence. And this, you know, has been questioned. I think one can make good arguments that it was unjust, or at least that, you know, they need to provide citizenship for everyone who lives in their country. And it has to be said that over the years, they have actually gone some way toward doing that. So all these people have permanent resident status. Um, If they wish to naturalize, it's quite easy to do so. Many of them have done so. Um, they, they can now vote and hold EU passports if they wish. If they don't wish, they can live in these countries as um, stateless permanent residents or as citizens of some other country, such as Russia. So this too is a historical legacy, right? From the point of view of the Baltic states, their multi-ethnic character, the fact that they're Russian-speaking communities is a result of the Soviet Union that they, they acknowledge as a matter of humanity they have to live with. It does seem to be, you know, it's convenient for Russia to kind of pick on this issue to sort of play the victim card. But really, you know, people who've looked into this have noticed that there is not a lot of appetite among, say, Russian-speaking Latvians or Estonians to, to join Russia, right? The, the sort of interest in actual separatism is really very low. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, these are successful states where you can earn a good living, enjoy good social benefits, um, speak your mind freely without going to prison. Russia doesn't offer any of those things. So it's, you know, it's a bit reductive to kind of present as Russia does that the existence of these minorities is some kind of problem that requires Russian patronage or if not, you know, military intervention. And, you know, the same thing goes for Ukraine, right? So Ukraine has political problems. It did before, before the Russian invasion began in 2014. Those problems do have a regional character. There is a debate in Ukraine about the status of the Russian language, but, you know, none of these problems is insurmountable. They're all internal matters that can be dealt with through democratic politics. You know, I've been to Kiev plenty of times. I spoke Russian when I arrived there. I tried to pick up some Ukrainian. It's really hard because when people hear my my crummy Ukrainian, they just switch to Russian. It's not it's not an unfriendly environment to speak Russian. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, and sometimes I wonder. I mean, you mentioned that sort of argument that's often brought forward about geopolitical security and this maybe clash of spheres of influence from between Russia and then, you know, NATO-aligned states, you mentioned that that's not necessarily logical if we look at the timeline of what actually happened and when Russia decided to first sort of back some incursions into Ukraine in 2014. And I've wondered that too, like, is this more of actually a domestically focused motivation for Russia in the sense that if Ukraine can sort of open up politically, integrate economically more with Europe, then what message is that sending to Russia's domestic populations about their own regime and the way in which political 
freedoms are restricted within the Russian domestic context. And it seems more comfortable in some ways for Putin and for his regime to have leaders, you know, like Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus, who really sort of need him in order to mm. keep control of the country. That seems like a more comfortable relationship yeah. in some ways for Putin than a thriving, I know Ukraine also had a whole lot of issues and challenges, but let's say like a thriving democratic regime that is sort of open politically and also integrated economically. And then as you were saying about maybe Russian speaking populations in some post-Soviet states, it's not that they're all flooding back to Russia saying, let, let us please live in this slightly more repressive yeah. or much more repressive sort of political environment where there are more restrictions and limitations on our personal freedoms. Yeah, no, it's, um, those are really important issues. Let me start with the timeline of Russia's intervention and how it substantiates or doesn't substantiate the arguments about NATO. If you go back to pre-2013, there was only a fairly small minority of Ukrainians who would respond in public opinion surveys that they were in favor of NATO membership. I think it was in the low 20s as a percentage. So, you know, not nobody, right? But clearly this was not the majority position. This was one of the arguments that was used in 2008 by Chancellor Merkel of Germany and and her um, allies to essentially scotch uh, Ukraine's NATO application was that there, there's no majority in this country for this position. And we're inter, we're kind of, we would be wading into, you know, a domestic political debate rather than, you know, a kind of consensus in favor of NATO. So leaving aside the merits of that argument, it's really Russia's behavior that has driven Ukraine toward NATO rather than the other way around. As you can imagine, after 20, 2014, when Russia seized a large portion of Ukrainian territory, public opinion gradually began to shift. And eventually, you know, a majority solidified in favor of Ukraine's NATO you know, membership. But that's a fairly recent development. And if we go back to sort of the key moment of late 2013, when the Russia-Ukraine um, dispute really escalated over this issue of uh, Ukraine's um, interest in joining the EU free trade agreement, you know, what we can see is at that moment, Ukraine was headed by a pro-Russian figure who had enacted a, a statement of neutrality into the Ukrainian constitution. So Ukraine was an officially non-aligned state and NATO membership was not at all part of this dispute. It simply was not on the table at all. So it's, it's just terribly disingenuous for Russia to say that their problems with Ukraine were caused by NATO expansion when really it's it's the other way around. Like their, their problems with Ukraine um, created a, you know, their aggression against Ukraine, let's call a spade a spade, you know, it created a, a shift in public opinion in Ukraine that, you know, that resulted in a majority becoming in favor of NATO. You know, if we were to play kind of a counterfactual, I think, you know, what if Yanukovych had not cracked down on these protests? Or what if Moscow had not objected to, you know, this EU free trade agreement? I think it's highly unlikely that Ukraine would have moved toward, you know, would have moved toward NATO in that scenario. I mean, it's mm-hmm. also, you know, it's, we can't replay history, but we can certainly imagine a kind of possible alternative history in which the Russia and the EU arrived in some kind of compromise where some kind of uh, free trade agreement with the EU was reached without, without full membership in the EU and where NATO was not on the table. So, you know, Russia has want to have, wanted to have it all its own way with, with, with Ukraine, to have total control of Ukraine's foreign policy, including aspects of that foreign policy that most people in Ukraine think are their business only. So, you know, whether they should be able to enter EU countries without a visa, um, you know, whether they should develop free trade relations with the EU, with the EU. These are not, these are not issues of security, right? These are issues about sort of economic policy and, and immigration, free, freedom of movement. So I think that history really gives the lie to the Russian claim that the, the conflict boils down to, to NATO expansion. 
there, there is evidence for you know, a variety of motivations converging on this in the, to sort of generate this sort of policy of all out aggression toward Ukraine. It, it's, it's been suggested by some of my colleagues, including um, Sam Green, who studied this EU issue in some depth, that you know, really what Putin finds much more threatening is the drift of Ukraine out of his Russia's economic orbit for, for different reasons. So first of all, Russia has a lot of not very competitive industries. It, it wants to compel its neighbors to buy their goods. It also wants neighboring countries to be available for laundering Russian money and, and other kinds of uh, illicit financial transactions. And, and EU membership um, really jeopardizes those, um, those goals. It's also true that there there is a undoubtedly a certain kind of foreign policy vector, right? So a Russia that dominates Ukraine will instantly be brought back into kind of the, the sort of a dominant position in European politics. But I think you're also right that there are domestic political issues here that, that are driving Putin's behavior. And a number of people have suggested, I think very persuasively, that a Ukraine that is you know successful or at least um, as successful as Russia and freer you know, is highly destabilizing for the Putin regime um, because, you know, these societies do have a lot of contact, right? So sort of to have an extra neighbor that seems to be doing better and is not, does not have the same kind of political system that Russia has and is pursuing other relationships in a way that's not possible under Putin. It's a bit like a kind of domestic abuse situation in which one partner wants to kind of smother the other, prevent her from from interacting with other people, right? I guess the analogy is not perfect there, right? Because part of that has to do kind of with the, the need for domination and that's in that example, but but also sort of the feeling of security you get or that the, the abuser gets from controlling this person. And, you know, the final piece of the puzzle may be that Russia is under Putin's uh, leadership. You know, it, it did experience a kind of boom in the early 2000s or so for roughly a decade from, you know, 2000 to the world financial crisis. It did quite well economically, but the period since then has not been kind to the Russian economy. You know, it has not um, successfully diversified or modernized. Um, growth has been very slow, close to nil. You know, we've seen this kind of tonic effect on Putin's popularity with previous foreign ventures, um, including, you know, Crimea, which really seems to have generated a lot of domestic political support for him. And I think it's reasonable to infer that if things had gone according to plan in Ukraine, and this had turned into a three-day operation in which Kiev was overrun, Zelensky fled to the West, and a pro-Russian government was installed, that he would have been you know, hailed as a master strategist in Russia, and a lot of Russians would have supported that. You know, it's, it's difficult to talk about, but there is a lot of support in the Russian population for the sort of narratives of Soviet restoration and grievance against the West. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you talk to, Ukra- to Russians, it is not uncommon to hear statements about sort of to the effect that Ukraine and Russia are so destined to be together and that, you know, any kind of autonomous Ukrainian government is an affront to, you know, this sort of unity. I think it's also quite interesting to think about how this is perceived in, among Ukrainians. And Ukraine is not a rich country. It's it's one of the poorest in Europe. It has problems of development. It has problems of corruption. It has problems of oligarchic rule. But it is a country where um, you can speak your mind freely. There is a lively free press in civil society. And presidents and political majorities in parliament, party, party majorities in parliament, have um, repeatedly changed hands um, freely as a result of elections. So in my own trips to Ukraine, you hear plenty of grousing. I mean, before the war, you, you could hear plenty of grousing about things in Ukraine. But particularly in recent years, I've noticed that you don't hear a lot of ad- admiration for Russia. You know, Russia is just not presenting an appealing model of development. This is, you know, a country that is highly repressive. Um, its economy is stagnating. It's cut off from the world. It's alienated all its neighbors. And you know, Ukraine is seen as a country that has some development prospects and has done some things right. 
And you know, for people who were surprised that people in, say, you know, parts of eastern Ukraine that have been occupied by Russia in the current um, invasion did not sort of you know, greet, the, greet the invaders with flowers, well, I think this is, this is basically why, right? This is, you know, Russia is not presenting an appealing model for, for its neighbors to join. That includes, you know, Russian-speaking Ukrainians who, although they may have no trouble communicating with um, their Russian occupiers, do not see them as a legitimate government or something that they want to be in control of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that completely makes sense. When we're talking about the Baltic states and how they've really been some the most strongly supportive of Ukraine currently since 24th of February this year in terms of supplying weapons as a proportion, you know, this kind of support they've given as a proportion of their GDPs, etc. I'm wondering, do you think that Putin, let's say, because really it's Putin's regime in Russia, is there a world in which Putin does engage in some kind of more militarily aggressive action towards those Baltic states? I mean, recently he talked about Russia's historical right to, you know, chunks of Estonia. (laughs) And I'm wondering, Um, you know, that really sort of puzzles me. Like, I think, would he really sort of engage in a military action against a NATO country? Like, could we see a world in which that happens? Or is that something that you think is totally off the table? Yeah, I don't think it's totally off the table. And the Baltics have been sounding the alarm about this. Had Putin swept through Ukraine, I I wonder where we would be right now, right? At the moment, uh, he may have his hands full, but it's not far-fetched to think that if the tide of war turns in Putin's favor, he he brings Ukraine to heel, there will be more pressure on the Baltics. You know, I also think that in a way, this kind of brings out again, the disingenuousness of the whole kind of NATO uh, discourse that is popular in some circles. NATO membership entails only, you know, essentially, in its essence, it entails the right and obligation of mutual self-defense. So Estonia and Canada, you know, must defend each other if they're attacked. That's what it means. It does not mean that Estonia must host American bases or American nuclear missiles. And in fact, it doesn't, right? And there's nothing to say that Ukraine would have to either. Those issues are, in fact, um, subject to, to bilateral, multilateral negotiation involving Russia. So, you know, in a way, where we are now in the Baltics, or where the Baltics are, is because of sort of the attempt to accommodate Russia's concerns about their NATO membership by not militarizing them. And, you know, as a result, they are now feeling very undefended. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I appreciate you joining me on the podcast today and sharing your insights. It's been great to be with you. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.